The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Greg told me I could uh, make myself at home, and so I'm going to do that. I hope you've packed lunch. It's great to be with you. It's so encouraging through Jesus Christ to know that we have friends and neighbors in the community that are reaching this vineyard for him. And I am thankful for your church. I've actually routinely sent people to your church. Sometimes folks will visit ours and for one reason or other won't be a great fit. And I'll say, hey, here's a list of really good churches and your church is at the top that I send folks to. But you know, around the world, there are millions of Christians today As you and I sit here enjoying our worship, there are millions of Christians today who don't have those freedoms. Twenty years ago, when I would go into a church and I would talk about remember, I would have to explain to people that Christian persecution still exists. I don't have to do that anymore. You read it in the news, don't you? Open Doors, in a recent study, would say that an average of 13 believers are known to be killed every single day for the cause of Christ. And that's no reference to those behind closed doors in closed countries like Korea, where we know believers suffer harsh conditions for the cause of Jesus Christ. It's to that end that uh, that God has raised up Remember, and for the past 15 years, He has enabled us to be in about 11 different countries serving the persecuted church with an emphasis on the widows and orphans of those who have given their life for Jesus Christ. Early in our ministry, God led us to Burma. That was where we began. Greg has been there with us. You might call it Myanmar. And we began our service by hiking into the jungles in Burma where believers were in hiding and ministering to them. Since that time in Myanmar, as the years have developed, things have changed there a good bit, and we've actually been able to establish a children's home in Myanmar where we house children, doors open for the children of any martyr of Jesus Christ in Burma. Could I ask you today if you would remember Burma? It's in the midst of a violent civil war. Picture yourself, would you? in a country where religious persecution is ongoing and now there's a violent civil war, there is unchecked COVID, they have really no medical help. Today, our staff and our children are in Myungdaka, in Burma, your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Would you pray for them today? We've been in a number of different countries. One that has been in the news lately is Afghanistan. And for about six years or so, remember, has ministered in Afghanistan. The nature of our ministry there is that we will find women who have lost their husbands to martyrdom. I could tell you lots of stories. A man was in a barber shop getting a haircut, and he felt an openness to begin witnessing to the barber who he had come to know. Someone else in the barber shop overheard it. So when this brother in Christ walked out into the street, this offended Muslim picked up a brick and brained him in the street. 
Remember, stepped in and we moved his wife and his family because now they were known to be believers. And we set her up in microenterprise so that she could care for herself. During the recent conflict, our activities were tied up with getting our staff worker out of Afghanistan. He and his family were threatened by the Taliban. We moved them a number of times. It was an amazing story. We spent, we spent many nights up all night moving our family around in Afghanistan, avoiding the Taliban. They're safely out now in UAE. I hope maybe someday to be able to bring them by and to, and to introduce them to you so you could hear the amazing story of the grace of Jesus Christ in their life and the safety that he gave them. Just about three weeks ago now, my son and I, Jonathan, made our way to Pakistan. Remember, is considering ministry there. In the country, we met a man in his family. His name is Razak. Now, persecution takes a different face in all kinds of different countries. In Pakistan, Christians are often enslaved. And Razak and his family have been enslaved for 13 years. 13 years. In fact, all of Razak's children were born into slavery and serve as child slaves in the brick kiln where Razak works every day. I wish I could take you there and you could watch him as he kneels by these, this pile of clay and as he takes a single form and as he molds brick after brick. In the hot sun, near a blazing kiln, under the pressure of his owner to produce more and more every day. That was Razak's life. Can we show the next slide? On Friday, November 19th, just weeks ago, Jonathan and I had the privilege of buying Razak and his family out of slavery. It was great. It was a thrill. $6,000, I bought a family of five. What a deal. It was a thrill. This brother in Christ, this born-again Christian who follows Christ and is part of a slave camp church, was free. I can't tell you how exciting it was for me. And I could never explain to you how exciting it was for Razak and his family. We got him out. We sent him off to be cleaned up. We got him haircuts. Bought the boys' clothes. And on Monday... The fri after the Friday we bought them, the boys showed up at school in their school uniforms. Weren't they proud? Enslaved for 13 years, born in slavery. No hope of going anywhere else till one day suddenly everything unexpectedly changed. 13 years is a long time to be in slavery working away, making brick after brick under the heat of the sun in the fiery brick kiln. But it's not 430 years. You see, 
Just like Razak's family, the children of Israel were slaves. 430, count them, years. 430 years. Entire generations growing up just like Razak's children, never knowing anything but being slaves. The children of Israel were in a slave culture. When you picture them in your mind, you need to picture their entire experience in slavery as being a culture of slavery. Not having the best of anything. No position, no education, no opportunity, and no hope. Like Razak's family. For 430 years, they had dug the ground in Egypt, planted fields, harvested them. With the calluses on their hands and the stripes on their backs, they had dug irrigation canals. And literally with the lives of their sons and husbands, they had made bricks. Thousands and thousands of bricks. You know the story, don't you? One day, God said, there's enough of that. We're going to do something different. And he sent Moses as a deliverer. Nine plagues were brought on Egypt, all of them targeted to one of the gods of Egypt. And then the tenth one came. And God said, I am going to send the death angel. And the death angel would slay the firstborn of every household, save those that bore the prophetic picture of the coming Messiah, blood of a lamb at the doorpost at the top and in each side. On that night, Scripture says, there was this great tumult of grief in Egypt as the firstborn across the land died. And what did Pharaoh decide? You know the story, right? Pharaoh decided, I have had enough. And just like Razak's family, immediately... Israel was released. In fact, they still use unleavened bread to celebrate this as a symbol of the fact that it happened so suddenly. God stepped in before the bread could even rise. They were set free. They packed up and they trucked out, making it all the way to the Red Sea. But then what happened? Well, Pharaoh got to thinking, didn't he? Right? He thought, you know what? I have just lost all of these, perhaps 1.3 to 1.8 million people leaving my service. And so he sent his thunderous chariots down upon them. Can you imagine that? The might of the most powerful military in the world chasing a horde of slaves. They were pinned. It was Pharaoh or drown. But God stepped in, didn't he? Parted the water. They walked through. Scripture records an amazing event that takes place. You see, what happens is that God closes the water on those Egyptians. 
Exodus 14 would say it like this. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch your hand over the sea that the water may come back on the Egyptians, upon their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned, covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not, read it, one of them remained. Of all the army that followed Israel into the sea, not one of them remained. Don't miss that. Don't miss it. The most powerful military in the world decimated in a moment. The most powerful military in the world that protected the most wealth in the world was destroyed in one sweep. Now I want you to picture yourself, will you? You are in tatters. You are breathless. You have just left a slave culture, been been chased through part of the desert, pinned against the Red Sea, and now God has delivered you. In front of you is the Negev desert. Behind you, behind you is the wealthiest country on earth. Egypt. These are the trees you tended in the orchards. These are the canals that that you dug with your sweat and blood and tears. These are the buildings built by bricks at the cost of your life. What an opportunity. Egypt was, in a word, defenseless. I believe the Exodus explains why sometime between 1400, if we get the next slide, and 1250 B.C., the Hyksos, a ragtag inferior army, invaded Egypt and conquered it. Egypt had stood for a thousand years. And historians crashed their heads and they say, how did the Hyksos manage to conquer Egypt? I believe this ancient Egyptian historian with these words tells us why. During the reign of a blast of God smote us, and unexpectedly from the regions of the earth, invaders of an obscure race marched in confidence of victory against our land. They easily seized it. 
You've just crossed the Red Sea. The power of God has been demonstrated. He can do anything. The bounty of the world lays behind you. And so naturally, it makes perfect sense that God would tell you to go east into the desert. God, are you sure? God, you got this right? The desert? Four decades long in the desert? And then after wandering around the desert, they would settle in Canaan. I like Israel. I've been there many times. I lead tours there. I go there regularly. I love it. Go with me in March if you would like. But Canaan ain't no Egypt. It's foundational to our understanding of Scripture to know that God fashioned a land intentionally. God was intentional in taking his people to what you and I would view as an inferior place. He didn't pick the best as we would see it. God intentionally designed a place, specific boundaries, a specific type of land in a specific place. Don't forget that. Because he wanted to do a work in his people that could not be done without it. God wasn't limited. It's not like this land was vacant. It wasn't. It wasn't like it wasn't fortified. It was fortified. God could have marched them to the Arctic. Imagine your Bible stories then. Or to the jungle or some lush Riviera. He took them to Canaan and left the bounty of Egypt. Now, I want to pause a moment parenthetically and say this. One of the reasons that I tell people to come to your church is because your pastor does expository preaching. Just going to tell you, okay? I believe that that is a great approach. Move through Scripture, word upon word, understanding the, the, the intent of the passage. And we hit the high spots and the low spots, the easy and the difficult spots, right? Expository preaching. I like it. Our church does it. It has grown me as a believer. It's critically important. And this morning, we're not going to do it. <laughs> I'm just going to fess up early, okay? Just going to fess up early. In fact, we're going to go a weird, kind of strange direction this morning that I don't usually go. But I hope as we do so that it will cause you to ponder some things that maybe you have never quite considered. I'll submit to you that our God is a God who wastes nothing. 
And I hope as you and I examine this, these passages together, that what we learn is that God was very intentional and purposeful in what was important to him in the lives of his people then. And just maybe he's very intentional in what he has fashioned in our lives today. So with that, let's begin an observation about the land of Israel. Number one, it's small. Most visitors that I take to Israel are shocked by its size. The entire country about the size of New Jersey, did you know that? One-third the size of the state of South Carolina. A country, a third the size of the state of South Carolina. About 120 miles wide, an average of, let's call it eight, excuse me, tall, about average about 80 miles wide, 8,666 square miles. This is not a big place. This is a small place. In fact, most of the events that you read about in the Bible, get this, happened within about 80 miles here to Orangeburg. David and Goliath, Samson, all that stuff, almost the entirety of the life of Christ within a distance of here to Orangeburg. In fact, it's one of the problems that I have when I do Bible tours over there because I say, see that spot right there? That's where this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. Right over there is where that happened. It's all congested because most of it happened within a distance of about 80 miles in a country the size of New Jersey. It's small. And God picked this diminutive little land to be the home of his people. Let's make it a little more difficult. Because not only is it small, 55% of the country is comprised of the Negev Desert. Rocks and sand. The Negev Desert. God said to Moses, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Does this sound like that to you? 55% the Negev. Two-thirds of the nation of Israel is comprised of land that is not naturally arable. This for a people who were agrarian. They were farmers. Friend, he gave me a farmer this morning. I worked my cows yesterday, by the way. I am a, I am a farmer. You're going to be a farmer in a land where two-thirds of the land is not naturally farmable land. I like this quote. I think it spells it well. Actually, let's go to the next slide, if you would, please. Great. You and I struggle with all of this because we live in what's called the Goldilocks zone. Did you know that? We live in what's called the Goldilocks zone. And we come to think that the whole rest of the world is just like us. It's not. We live in the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cool, lots of fertile farmland. In fact, 
the Midwest of the United States is the largest contiguous farmable acreage in the world. We live in an exception to the rule. We're in the, the Goldilocks zone. Israel is 55% the Negev Desert, and two-thirds not naturally farmable. Tina Morgan says this, God prepared for his chosen people a land that embodied the direst of geographic hardship. Possessing meager physical and economic resources, the promised land has yielded up to its residents a simple, tenuous, mystifying, and precarious existence, even under the best of circumstances. And God left Egypt for that. God prepared a place with specific boundaries of a specific type and positioned, I'm going to say it again, don't miss it, in a specific location so that he could bring about a very specific work in his people. If I could just pause to say this, you and I are so interested in being comfortable. God is so interested in his relationship with us. To understand how all this works better, um, I want to look at the neighbors of Israel. Okay? I hope you recognize this from your high school geography class. This is the Fertile Crescent, right? the cradle of civilization, the Fertile Crescent. Up in the northeast side, okay, where it says Mesopotamia, there are alluvial farm fields, lots of water. What two rivers are there? Say Tigris and Euphrates River, right? And what happens is every year those rivers overflow. And when they overflow, they saturate more and more fertile ground. The green is from all of this water that is there. This, this natural flow of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. That land fueled great civilizations, Babylon and Assyria. On the African side, okay, down in the south over here, southwest, as you see, the Fertile Crescent curls north, and then it takes this little narrow strip through Jerusalem. Then it comes down to the African continent. That's Egypt. And Egypt is much like Babylon and Assyria. The Nile River floods every year, creates these alluvial grounds, these rich, fertile soils with lots of moisture. It is the common element from both of these great civilizations. They were fueled by rivers. As a result, they had everything necessary. They had all the produce, all the livestock that they needed to have vast civilizations, and vast civilizations sprung up in those two locations. 
Babylon and Assyria are examples in the Northeast. Egypt, the longest lasting, most wealthy nation in Africa, down here to the Southwest. All because of the rivers that flowed through them as part of the Fertile Crescent. Do you know what the narrow strip is that goes through Egypt? Do you know what it is called? It is called the Levant. This, if we can back up one more, please. This narrow, back up one more, please. This narrow strip that goes by Egypt, says Canaan and Lebanon, that's called the Levant. From Mesopotamia, Assyrian Babylon, and from Egypt there arose empire-building countries. Empire-building countries. They had plenty to feed themselves, and they had plenty, next slide, to feed vast armies that went throughout the world creating empires. They were empire-building lands. Israel's much different. Next slide. The Levant is not watered by a river. This is, juxtap this is a satellite photo that is juxtaposed on a map, and I think it tells the tale well. You see, here's how it works. For that narrow section between Mesopotamia in the northeast and Egypt in the southwest, that narrow section that comes through Israel, that water comes from a very different source. It's going to be hard for you to understand this, but in this area there's something they call humidity. Humidity. It's where there is moisture in the air, and the air is warm. Humidity. It comes because they are by the Mediterranean Sea. And when you have these hot places that are right by the ocean, you have humidity, right? What happens in Israel is that this warm, moist air will rise over the Mediterranean Sea. The winds of the Mediterranean then push that wind east. And as that wind goes east, it encounters the Judean mountains, the Judean hills and then the Judean mountains. And so that air begins to climb. And as that hot, moist air begins to climb, it encounters colder temperatures. And what happens in countries like this, in places like this, is that in the afternoons they get thunderstorms and rain. That is how the Levant is watered. It is very different from Egypt and from Mesopotamia. The water falls, it tends to come westward down the hill, hence why in this tiny little country there are these divergent cultures. There are people on the west side who are farmers, very close neighbor of people on the east side of the mountain who aren't getting much rain, and they are shepherds free-ranging their sheep. That is how the Levant is watered. It is very different 
from the Israel was very different from the nations around it. It's a weakness. Because unless God sends the rain, your land won't survive. That's a sermon for another day. But there's something else interesting about this land because God gave it a very peculiar advantage that I suspect many of us have never seen. God made Israel a land bridge between the two great empire-building centers of the world. If you look at this map that I've just put up, you'll see that there is the Sea of Galilee that flows down to the Dead Sea. It looks flat here. It is not. The Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea are all in what is known as the Great Rift Valley. I'll say it this way. It's really, really low. In fact, God took his finger and dug a notch in the earth there that is deeper than anywhere in the world. The Dead Sea, the lowest point on earth. Because of that Great Rift Valley, if you want to travel from Mesopotamia where you have plenty down to Egypt to get some of their goods, guess what you've got to do? You've got to go through Israel, the Levant, the land bridge of the world at the time. The most important international roadway in the world, called by various names, here the Via Maris, went through Israel. And we will see from Scripture that God did that intentionally with a purpose. Imagine it, would you? All of this wealth being accumulated in Mesopotamia. They want to trade with the world. And the world really is Egypt, the two great superpowers. So they have to communicate with each other through Israel. Hence the flow of the world's merchandise and food and armies as they exchanged blows and ideas all went through Israel. I like this photo. If you stood with me in, this, if in the old city of David, and you looked out over the Kidron, you would see there in what I believe to be the Valley of the Shadow of Death, a number of tombs that have been carved over time. And I like this one because I think it tells the tale well. Notice this. This is in Israel, okay? In fact, this is in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, someone carved out a tomb at great expense with Greek columns... Mesopotamia was well Hellenized, with Greek columns and a pyramid-looking roof. Because the cultures of the world flowed through Israel by God's design. Goods, food, merchandise, 
armies, philosophies, religions. If you had a message and you wanted to carry it to the world, you had to carry it through Israel. Israel was the centerpiece of the world. It was the stage where all international activity was carried out. The limelight of the world was there. It was set in the middle of the nations. When Solomon came to power, unified kingdom period, there's an obscure little verse that is so important. It comes from 1 Kings. It says, Solomon fortified Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Why did he do that? Because if you can fortify those strategic locations, and they could be done so because of their geography with limited resource, if you could secure those three locations, you could have a chokehold on international commerce. Now, imagine you, okay, you. You own a bridge. It is the only bridge that goes between China and the United States and there ain't no airplanes. Imagine you own a bridge. It is the only bridge that goes between the United States and Europe. You own the bridge. That is exactly where Solomon was positioned. And that is how he accumulated all of his wealth. Because what did he do? What would you have done? <laughs> he charged a toll, right? He charged a tax. And the Bible says, next slide, that all kinds of wealth begin to pour into his kingdom. In fact, Scripture tells us that 666 talents of gold poured into his kingdom annually, paid to him by other countries to get to use the road. And in addition to his wealth, Solomon used that road, his position of influence to persuade the nations of the world. Kings chapter 10 says this, And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Why were they paying so much attention to Israel? It's because it was unavoidable. They were set in the middle of the nations. I love this part. The Queen of Sheba comes to pay a visit. Why would she be there? Because she's down in Egypt and she's doing commerce with the rest of the world. And you know what she finds when she goes there? She finds that people are happy and contented, that there is joy in this land, and that Solomon has wisdom that has to be beyond his. So the queen, she praises God and brings glory to his name. That was exactly God's plan. The people of Israel were put in a land because that was designed for them because God didn't want them to be empire building. He wanted them to be people of influence. So he strategically placed them so they would be. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around him. 
with lands around her. His intention was that Israel would be a light to the nation, witnesses, and a kingdom of priests. Cities set on a hill make more sense. This is going to be the epicenter of the world. God wanted Israel to be a kingdom of priests, a light to the world. He set her at the center of the nations. Next slide, if you would. And again. But they weren't. Oh, there were these bright spots. Part of Solomon's reign was one of them. But they failed in their role to be an influence and to be an example. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I've set her at the center of the nation with lands around her, but she's rebelled against my ordinances. And so Ezekiel tells us that God determines to use her as another example, an example of a place that he would judge. So my point this morning as we wrap up is really pretty simple. I see this wonderful parallel. We sang about it today. Jesus Christ came to earth. He could have made himself the most wealthy person in the world. Could have made himself the most talented person in the world, the best-looking person in the world, one you would want to look at. He could have been anywhere. He could have been in Mesopotamia. He could have been in the heart of Rome, where things were really throbbing at the time. But he wasn't. He was in Israel. Do you ever feel small? We live in a culture that is an empire-building culture. And empires can be okay. But most of the time, God isn't interested in building an empire. He's not looking for people who have this great human resource, this, this amazing charisma and talent, this brilliant mind. these naturally attractive good looks. God usually isn't looking for that. What he is looking for are people who will be people of influence. You know what he does? He makes people like you and me, and forgive me if I offend you, but he makes small people like us. Small people. And he gives us limited resources. Do you feel like you have limited resources? Just like Israel. Just like Christ. Next slide. And then he says, but I'm going to position you where I want you to be a person of influence. That's God's measure. You're in a wonderful church. You're crowded with lots of good and godly people. And there's some of those that you, because of how God has positioned your life, your age, your experience, maybe where you live, there are people in this church that God has uniquely designed you 
to strengthen and encourage. Read Ephesians. It says it really pointedly. Not people of great resource, but people of tremendous influence. That is what he hungers for. And I would ask you, are you one of those? If you said, God, you know what? You have made me to live during this day in 21. You have made me to live in this place and around these people, and the charge you have given me in your word is to be a person of influence to them. Have you influenced anybody in this body today by being an encouragement to them? By stimulating them to love and good works? Just like Israel was positioned and expected by God to be a nation of influence, you have been positioned... And God expects you to be a person of influence. Israel failed in that. It became selfish and inward. And it failed in that task. God also positioned them to exert this influence in the world around them. It was a world that needed to hear the truth of Yahweh. But Israel failed in that. It became inward. And rather than being the example and the influence in the world... It ignored God's commands. I remember when I fought in Desert Storm, and, uh, and I was a Marine, and so, of course, we were the ones that won that war for you guys. In all the other wars since, really, 1776. <laughs> I'd lived in holes. I'd packed around in the desert. And I came home with a very clear picture of what the war looked like because actually I had just seen it, you know, right there in the sand. And I came home, and I remember in those early days they were kind of really stuff through the news. And I watched on the news in awe as they showed this bomb. This plane drops this bomb. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these things. plane drops this bomb, and it's called a smart bomb. Nobody ever, by the way, argued that we, the Marines, were smart. We were effective, but this bomb was smart. And this smart bomb comes off this plane, flies through the air, and it goes through this vent shaft. Did you ever see that? And this building explodes from the inside out. Not the biggest bomb we had. Not the biggest bomb but strategically positioned to explode in the right place. God has strategically positioned you in a store, at a school, in a neighborhood, in a family. He wants you to be an influence for him, a place that nobody else can, just like Israel is small land of limited resource. Go, do, small, well. May we, Father, would you be at work in us? Our lives become harried and hurried and crowded, and we forget that you have designed us, positioned us strategically, uniquely, to be people of influence. 
in your church, and in the world. In Jesus' name.